0: First, I'd like to introduce Brian Simmons, who's been um, attending, too, I'm sure, very beautifully to uh, to giving instructions and familiarizing people with the practice. So, welcome. And welcome to all of you who have been um, getting instructions in the other room, too. So, before we write our Dharma talk together... There are just a few announcements. Um, before we start, I'd like to just tell you um, a little bit of news, which is that um, a very dear friend of ours, who is a teacher to some of us, her name is uh, Sherry Maples, who lives in Wisconsin, is a was... Um, has a very interesting background. Was a, a policewoman for many years, and almost became the chief of the police department in in Madison. Was a, um, a lawyer and a, um, I think a, a district attorney or a, a um, U.S. attorney. I'm not sure which, for many years, and then met Tiknat Han. And was. Um, Authorized by Tiknat Nhat Hanh because of her deep practice, to teach and she's an amazing teacher. And unfortunately, Sherry, a couple of days ago, three days ago, I believe, um, was riding her bike in Madison, which is an incredibly bicycle-friendly city, and had a terrible accident with a, um, with a van. Her injuries are quite serious. She had broken ribs, uh, leg injuries, spine injuries, and was having, the last I heard, was having a difficult time breathing and had to be assisted in her breathing and has had some medical procedures. So I'd like to offer... um, and ask you to join with me in offering for Sherry, uh, Sametta. And for those of you who are new to that um, word, it's a Pali word, uh, meaning mostly translated as loving kindness. And it's our way of offering up prayers for the well-being of a dear one. And, of course, we're all dear ones to each other. And yet, it's a particularly poignant way of bringing Sherry into, our, into the room with us and bringing her into our hearts with a deep, heartfelt um, wish for her full, perfect, and speedy recovery and that all of her functions be completely, utterly, perfectly restored to her. So please just join me for a moment of silence in wishing her, however you do it, safety, peace, and happiness, well-being of body, mind, heart, and spirit, and complete ease of well-being. And of course, we, we extend those wishes to all beings who may be in distress, whether physical, emotional, or mental. As you know, on Tuesday nights when I teach here, we, we write a Dharma talk together from the questions that you may have. And I, I invite questions. They don't have to be the most powerful, beautiful, wonderful, great, interesting questions. They can be very simple, whether it has to do with practice or Dharma. They're all very welcome. And just so that you know that any question that you ask Probably at least 25% of the people in the room have exactly the same question. And so you're doing a beautiful service by being willing to engage with me in a question. So who has the mic? Corey or? Great. And I'm sorry for the people who came in. My name is Gina because I didn't meet you before. And if you could start with your name, that would be great. Yep.
1: Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you, too. I've been coming a few months, so I know you, but I've never met you formally. <laughs> Sorry? But I've never met you Formal. formally. You've not met so. me formally. We've now <laughs> met formally. <Yes>. Hi.
0: <laughs>
1: um, there's something I've been curious about. I wanted to keep it kind of... Very general questions, so you might feel free to say whatever you like on the topic. Thank you. Um, I'm curious about this experience on the path of having a teacher. I'm often hearing teachers refer to their teachers, and I see this in the yoga world a lot, too.
0: Hmm. That is a general question. May I ask why you ask?
1: Uh, I find myself wondering if I should seek out a teacher. What do you
0: think would be the benefits and the detriments of that? Well, the support,
1: uh, having someone to talk to about all the questions and issues that come up in practice, And I can't think of any detriments. Okay. Yeah.
0: Um, so, you know, the um, bringing of the Dharma in the West is a big experiment, right? Because uh, we've appropriated the practice and, and much of the, um, many of the, the uh, customs. From Asia, which is obviously where Buddhism started as the Buddha was born in Nepal. And uh, the model, more the model in, in Asian countries, for those of you who've been there, you know that um, the monastery is usually. Um, reserved for monastic practice, right? And the monastic practice has a very uh, set form. And the way it works, in, in, I know mostly about the Theravadin. I've practiced in other traditions, but I know mostly about the Theravadan practice with teachers and all of that. And In the Theravadan monasteries, you, you come in and you become um, a kind of pledge. You know, you, 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 you come in for a short period of time in which the monks look you over and you look the monks over and they, you kind of decide whether it might be an appropriate match for you to enter the monastery. And usually the monastery has a senior teacher, a head monk, and then below him are um, monks that have been there for varying periods of time. And he is their teacher. And the monks, the, the middle monks, are the teachers of the new monks. And there's, there's a very um, uh, clear... Protocol, and how you treat your teacher, and how your tre- teacher treats you, and um, it's 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 very the form is very clear. In the West, we're not so clear, right? M- mainly because mostly most of our teachers, we do have monasteries, but they're very 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 few and far between, and nunneries, and. Um, the ones that are here are pretty much operate on the Asian model, the Theravadan Asian model. and uh, But in, in our retreat centers and in our community centers, it's a very different kind of model. So we have usually several teachers who have, most of us have practiced in the East as well as in the West, and um, most of us are householders. And because of the dana system that is uh, not quite as, it's not quite as uh, culturally ingrained in the West, most of our, many of our teachers have to do other jobs in order to actually make a a living. As one one colleague of mine said, nobody's getting rich off this gig. (laughs) So um, the relationship of students and teachers has been... We've had to kind of feel our way into it. And usually what happens is uh, those of us who have been practicing for a while, we go on, on long retreats. So we can go on retreats at the retreat centers of 10 days, um, well, some now we even do weekends. So weekends, maybe five days, seven days, ten days, um, s- three weeks, six weeks, and three months. And Usually, what happens to get a teacher, to, have a, to, to begin a relationship with a teacher, is you go to one of those retreats or several of those retreats and, and you have some um, simpatico with a teacher. And after you've been taught by them for a while, you may have been in uh, teacher meetings with them and the relationship kind of develops over. period of time and so that teacher starts to get to know your practice and the, the the student teacher relationship develops in a kind of organic way usually and that's how it's actually been in the retreat model the community centers are slightly different and we have different models of community centers but, for instance, at New York Insight, we have several teachers, um, you know, of different, ex- different experience levels. And, again, if you've come to a particular teacher's sittings for a while, and they get to know you, and you get to know them, and you ask them to see you privately, some of us are able to do that, and some of us are, don't do that, because we're actually making a living some other way. But we we are skilled in teaching because we've been trained. And so um, it's not really, uh, it's it's not as uh, systematized as it probably ought to be, but I think it's because there are all of these different levels of involvements from teachers and different ways in which you get to know a teacher. My teacher, my main teacher. I have several teachers, but my main teacher is Jack Cornfield, and I got to know him at by going on retreats, long retreats with him, and having him as my uh, my teacher in interviews. And um, I try to have regular contact with him, and usually, as you very. Rightly said. It's about um, uh, really connecting about practice and how practice applies in particular life situations, and how um, and and really kind of relying on the the teacher I do anyway to uh, remind me that there is a different way to see something, to see a situation, rather than simply my reactivity to it. I think that for me, that's like the main thing, is to be reminded when I'm being reactive and not uh, considered. And, and sometimes, and the, I have private students, and, and usually my, my view is that whatever is happening in their lives is dharmic. And so we can talk about anything and begin to understand how the Dharma touches all of the aspects of our lives Um, I think you know because in the West we rely so heavily on therapists and psychologists etc that sometimes those roles become confused but they really are clear so that because the the and they are both needed. So sometimes people want to kind of smash them together and you know, think, well, if I have a teacher, I don't need a, a therapist. But sometimes we have particular, um, particularly um, uh, significant issues that may need psychological attention. And that's totally in alignment with, um, with, with also being in the teachings And uh, to rely on the teacher to know when we're moving into um, the psychological rather than the dharmic, Uh, but also to be um, mindful of of all of the ways in which the dharma can touch our lives. And, And if we are really deep students, really ought to be touching our lives in every aspect. And so... Hopefully, that's somewhere in there. I've answered whatever question you actually had.
1: Thank you. You're welcome.
0: And usually, if you, want, if you if you've ha- have a feeling about a teacher that they may be of help to you, you can approach them and see if they're available. <laughs> Did I forget anything? Did I forget anything? You got it. I got it. I got it. I got it.
2: Thanks. <laughs> Hello.
0: Oops, careful. So
2: Hi. Nice to meet you.
0: Nice to meet you, too.
2: Um, so I've been practicing for a little while, and I've been um, allowing my practice to evolve, because the more I see in the practice, uh, the more it continues to make sense to me. Um, That's That's good yeah yeah yeah. Um, however, there's been some like um, traces of wisdom from other paths that have been really pertinent, and um, I know it seems like a fool's errand to integrate uh, really? things outside of the pa- uh, the path. Well, at least it's not working for me. Um, so I don't know. I'm trying to figure out uh, if it's worth. Integrating things outside of the path into my like evolving Buddhist framework or if I should just kind of let it roll as it's going
0: hmm. So would you like to share with us what what exactly it is that you're having this?
2: Yeah, so I guess there's internal like internal
0: th- conversation about
2: um Three major areas which are very interrelated one of them is beliefs and how beliefs frame reality and how we each carry around limiting beliefs that frame our reality in a limiting way and when we target those beliefs and either um, I guess reinvent them then we are able to create a new more empowering reality even if it is just a subjective reality Um, so that's one thing a second thing is this concept of like authenticity uh because I kind of have this feeling that or at least this perception that everybody is like this flower and most people are unblossomed or in the process of blossoming And the more they, like, blossom into their authenticity and then find a place where their life is just filled with authentic passion and purpose. Um, And then the third thing is uh, also related, but the concept of intuition. Like, there's something inside of me that knows what to do and is leading me into blossoming. Um, And I'm having trouble integrating any of those things Hmm. into my Buddhist framework. Hmm. Uh, But they seem important.
0: Why do you think any of that is not Buddhist?
2: Well, I haven't encountered any of it directly in a class or uh, teaching.
0: Well, I'm glad you've asked the question, then. Yeah. <laughs>
2: um, and because... so the
0: first is reality, the second is authenticity, <laughs> and the third is intuition. Correct, yeah. None of those are Buddhists. You've not encountered them anywhere in the Buddhist teachings.
2: Um, so I could easily be mistaken. <laughs>
0: <laughs> How long have you been practicing?
2: Um, two years.
0: Uh-huh, okay. And have you been studying?
2: Yeah, well, I read books and listen to a lot of lectures. Uh
0: huh. Have you been reading any suttas?
2: No, I haven't read any suttas. Uh-huh.
0: That's where the teachings are, and usually, you know, so we can either read the the primary sources or the secondary sources, and and again, you know, because we've we've adapted the 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 teachings to a Western audience, and the Buddha himself said, you know, when you teach, there's a sutta in which um, the monks come to him and they're complaining because one of their brethren. Uh, is not teaching in uh, what they call classical meter, right? And they ask the Buddha to discipline him. And the Buddha says, foolish monks, right? You should teach to people in their vernacular, right? So uh, so there's that. And then there's another sutta in which he says... um, Where the, the populace come to him and say, all these teachers are coming through our town and they're constantly, you know, and one person says this and then another person says that and everybody seems to have some kind of truth somewhere, right? And, you know, who should we believe? And the Buddha says, Yourself. And what he meant by that is not, you know that you just kind of fantasize something and then you believe it, but that actually he said, "Don't believe what I tell you, or what any teacher tells you, just because you think, "Oh, there is a great teacher, and I should believe what, they, what he, he or she says." He said, "He, but I'm saying he or she." And uh, he said, "But what you do is you put it into practice. And when you put it into practice, then you will know whether it's true and beneficial. He also was a great one for talking about delusion and reality and really discerning what is a figment of our imagination, what's a story that we're making up, and what is actually real. And he called that um, one of his. He had four clear, four clear comprehensions. So so mindfulness is not just mindfulness by itself, but really mindfulness and clear comprehension. And one of those clear comprehensions was reality. So we're we're ordered to understand reality in a clearly comprehending way. So that's the first thing that you. Talked about was reality and authenticity. <laughs> what else could we possibly do, but actually be completely authentic in who we are? Because if we're not being authentic in who we are, then there's a, there's pretense that's that clearly isn't reality, and so we're not clearly comprehending what is really true. And of course, the you know our our practice leads to truth, our practice leads to the end of suffering, because what's cleared away is delusion, confusion, hatred, right? So, as human beings, we've been gifted with this ability to cut through the rational mind. The rational mind is really excellent for certain things. Mathematics, physics, biology, learning a language, all kinds of things. It's beautiful. And yet it is limited in its ability for us to cut through to actually see what is true and what is real so that intuitive sense is what we train when we start with in mindfulness what we're actually the muscle that we're actually training when we are when we're practicing mindfulness what do you think it is
2: some sense of intuitive wisdom
0: and how do we do that?
2: We run a ton of experiments. No. <laughs> well, I mean in the sense that like every moment is an experiment.
0: Okay. That, that was a good catch. Yeah. <laughs>
2: so
0: that was good. But actually, the first foundation of mindfulness is mindfulness of the body. Mm. And that's where our intuition comes from. It's an embodied... So, embodiment is authenticity and intuition and reality. So, it's not separate from any of those, so that we may hear and we may hear teachings in another vernacular, and yet the integration of those teachings into our daily life is not different from what is taught in the Dharma. So we begin to understand in a very clear way, that the Dharma is not a, not a conceptual understanding that is kind of out of reach somewhere. And someday when we've read all of the suttas and sat 18 three-month retreats and done, you know, 85 prostration, 85,000 prostrations, and this and that and the other thing, that then suddenly somewhere out there there will be realization but that as you said in every moment if we are completely embodied we understand embodiment in a in an in an authentic and actual way of being our our ability to let go begins to open all by itself so it's not a it's not a forced thing it's not a it's it's not a linear thing. But that actually our practice opens into reality, authenticity, and intuition.
2: Hmm. Yeah, thank you. That was a really cool explanation. Um,
3: <laughs>
2: and yeah, thank I guess I'm, i I it's now pretty evident to me that I had like a very literal and limited concept of Buddhist practice and was getting caught up in what I perceived the form of that to be. Hmm. Um, so thank you for helping Good luck. dispel.
0: Good luck. Yeah. May, may it continue. Yeah, yeah appreciate it.
2: <laughs> uh,
3: Can hi. I
0: have a woman? A woman. We've. Oh uh, yeah, yeah. We've, I just want to. I want to just vary the, uh, and then we'll come back to you, Han. <laughs> equal opportunity. It's an equal opportunity Dharma class.
4: Thank you. Thank you for giving the opportunity for me to ask the question. Um, so, um, as I said earlier, I'm quite new to this practice. Um, so, started to. So, I just came back from this retreat and felt like really opens me up to to sort of like. How long work. was the retreat? Four days uh, at IMS. Um, so, and also this year I started to like to explore this a bit more. I was was like, that
0: the retreat with Anushka and? Uh, yeah, Pascal? with uh, Pascal. Yeah.
4: Um, so uh you know also on my own started to like read more books, attend different workshops, but I feel some teachers some teachings they are like loaded with different like religious terms that I don't quite get that don't quite speak to me, but some teachers, I really feel I have this trust or even like connection with them um so I'm just wondering if you have any like suggestions for beginner meditators like me like for beginners. Um, to, I don't know, because right now I feel like it's unclear. I'm, like, exposing myself to all different things. But I wasn't sure whether I'm, like, on the right path or... I, I just don't know. Like, I'm really curious about the concept of being awakened. And I feel I'm a little more awakened than before, before my meditation practice. So I think that's a good thing. But I just don't know, like, to continue the practice... Whether you have any suggestions about either how to develop a daily practice or the books to read, or as or as you said, how to study more, either about meditation itself or the Buddhist tradition. Okay, thank so, you.
0: So you know, it's a 2,600-year-old practice, right? And we're not going to, if we try to swallow it in one gulp, we're going to have terrible indigestion, right? So, why I say that is, I'd really like you to be very patient with yourself and to know that in every moment it's actually possible to completely embody the practice. So what is the practice? It's an, it's, it, so, the, the, the basic teaching of the Buddha is the Four Noble Truths, right? Which is, there is, there is dukkha or suffering. There is a cause for that dukkha uh, and, uh, which, is, which is the clinging mind. That's a very general thing, but that's good enough for now. And the third is that, that suffering, or that dukkha, we can be free of. And the fourth is that there is a path, and that path is called the Noble Eightfold Path. And it consists of three, three branches. Wisdom, integrity, and meditation. Okay? That's the entire teaching in a way. Right? And that's been explicated by thousands of texts and Buddhist psychology and you know, the Abhidhamma and the Vinaya, which is the rules for monks. So we've got three sets of um, documents. Right, the Buddha's discourses, the Vinaya, the, the monks' rules, and the, the Abhidhamma, the Buddhist psychology, and we could really get a lot of indigestion trying to swallow all of that down whole, right? And all of those texts are really there to stimulate your understanding of what it means to live this eightfold path. To really bring it down to a very basic kind of simple way of looking at what it is you're undertaking when you undertake a Buddhist path. Am I living in integrity? How is my wisdom? Is, am I living in a way that is wise? or am I totally reactive, <laughs> right? You don't have to answer that. And what is wisdom, right? So, so I, can, I can recite for you what the suttas say about what is wisdom, but that's not really helpful to you right now. What's really helpful to you right now is that the, that's even a question. Because if you think about it, when we go to school, or even when we go to church in you know, our Abrahamic religions, which is what most of us come out of if we have any kind of religion, wisdom is not, a, it's not an option really, right? It's not what we are directed towards. So even the question that you, if you, even if you just have a question in your mind in every moment, what is wisdom? What does it mean? to be wise? Is it just knowing a lot of stuff, right? You know, about black holes or, you know, the expanding universe or uh, whatever, whatever you want to, whatever you want to choose. Or is there some way that we can actually live from our bellies and our hearts and our bodies and our minds in concert? in a way that moves through a world that doesn't harm, that has an intention of goodwill. Pretty simple stuff, not easy to do but pretty simple to conceptualize. And how do I live in integrity? Can I actually speak the truth? Can I actually make a living in a way that does no harm and can I act in a way that is without harm these are pretty simple basic human questions and then you come here and you learn meditation and you learn wise mindfulness, wise concentration, and wise effort. And maybe it's not put in that structure, but that's basically what you're learning when you come here to be taught meditation. That's it, that's the path, right? It took me like five minutes to say that. And then we have all of these texts that allow us to delve more and more deeply into what all of that means but we could get very confused if we want to just feed our minds and not have an integrated way of practice with all of these what we call wisdom teachings right and they and and meditation you know, as we go along and as we practice more and more and as we are willing to give ourselves over to the meditation practice, we, uh, our, our concentration and our mindfulness becomes deeper and deeper and deeper. But it can't be rushed. And we want to rush it because we're Americans, right? And we want it now. Not yesterday, not today. Now, we want it right now. And what would it be like to live a life that is of this culture and yet does not, is not uh, dictated to by this culture but has the patience has and can and where we can develop the qualities that will allow us to walk that eight field, eightfold path and the and the teaching of the buddha with that is that there are 10 qualities that we can that we can develop generosity that's the first he always puts that first because if we have an open heart we that heart can receive we, if, if our hearts are locked down We can't hear anything. We can't receive teachings. So generosity, renunciation, integrity, wisdom, energy, patience, truthfulness, determination, loving kindness, and equanimity. So the ability, equanimity can be sometimes a, a confusing concept, but it's not really. It's just the ability to navigate the storms of life with some wisdom that understands that these storms of life are part of what it means to be alive. And can we see them, navigate them in a way where we're not seeing ourselves as victims, but actually navigate them, in, navigating them in a way where we can receive the lessons that we need to receive from them. So the Eightfold Path and these 10 qualities, which we call paramis, which are translated as perfections of a Buddha, if we start there, we begin to, the the path begins to unfold before us. And then we begin to understand what, what we need to do individually. To understand more deeply, in addition to practicing in such a way that our practice becomes deeper and deeper. And that's really the key that unlocks the door, and the wisdom teachings begin to explain to us, in some ways, what's happening to us as it happens as we walk the path. Does that make sense? Yeah. Great.
5: Thank you. Thank you You're so welcome, much. You're welcome,
0: Vanessa. Now I'll take a man. (laughs) I hope it's a simple question because we don't have too much time.
3: Um, So it's not quite a question, but recently it's right around on top of what you just said about embodiment. And a friend of mine in um, who's in Oregon, who did a number of uh, we did a whole bunch of body-oriented psychotherapy trainings when I was in Boulder many, many years ago already. And he shared this embodiment meditation practice with me that someone, uh, that he has been studying. And he did it with me on the phone. And it was really like a gestalt kind of thing and a a sensory awareness. It was very in the moment, deep, slow scanning the body and following the breath, but in detail, in real detail. Mm -hmm. And it it was tremendous. Great. You know, and I realized, you know, it's not like it's something I don't know, and you know, but I, it was like the formatting and just the, the sequencing and the integrating the breath and the body sensation and filling from the inside.
0: So, yeah, so there, you know, there are a lot of different techniques. Yeah, right, right. And, you know, most of them are helpful.
3: Yeah, yeah. It was very, right. you know. Thank was, you. Yeah, you were
0: so, we have room, for time for one more question.
5: Hi. So, as I'm deepening my practice, I'm doing more mindful things like mindful eating or whatever, but I'm finding myself taken over by emotion like helping my grandmother use the bathroom or eating my oatmeal and sort of feeling like I'm falling in love with my oatmeal. And what's happening, but my question is, it's really too much sometimes. And so as, you know, this path deepens, is it something like mindfulness is sort of opening up emotions or whatever, but does it get easier to sort of deal with some of the overwhelmingness of the
1: present moment?
0: Do you want to answer that?
3: Sure.
5: I I can't, from direct personal experience, uh, say that I've ever fell in love with my oatmeal. (laughs) Um, But I do do understand this experience. And I think it goes to what Gina was saying earlier about when when wisdom starts to blossom, we begin to see things in a different context. And the allure of loving our oatmeal or um, helping our grandmother, or whatever the experience happens to be, is still there, we still feel it, but it, it might not be quite so seductive, held in a different context, seen maybe that it does not provide the satisfaction that we think that it does prior to practicing. And sometimes we are very seduced into grasping after certain elements of experience when we look a little more deeply, are not what we thought they were. In, in the smaller room, someone was asking the question about in the breathing, just watching how it was almost like skiing, like following the rise and the fall and all of this. And what we were talking about was how um, experience is really, there are certain common features to it. And this is what Gina was saying before about it's constantly changing, it's devoid of a self, and when we try to grasp after it, it creates suffering. Now we could read books on this and we could conceptually understand it, but when we actually see it, really see it in the breathing and moment-to-moment experience, we don't let go of that. The letting go just happens. So we may feel an impulse, to grasp after the oatmeal. But with some wisdom, that tendency tends to fall back a little bit. So I'm gonna start eating more oatmeal.
0: It's, um... Is that helpful? Is that helpful? Yeah. Yeah. And you know, and, and so I think one of the things Brian's saying also is to be really precise. Precision is really important in meditation, and I think maybe as teachers we don't teach it enough. That precision, where your practice is really—when we say moment to moment, we don't mean like now and now and now. We mean nanosecond to nanosecond So the breath is moving, and it's moving in in you know millions of seconds can you actually be present to see it? And then, so what Brian was referring to in that precision, and of course the precision is not a kind of tight, you know, I'm going to make it happen, but it's a really gentle precision with kindness. When we're precise in our practice, the letting go that Brian's talking about actually does happen by itself. Not because we're trying to make something happen, but because we are so diligently applying ourselves to the practice that it does what is promised. Ah, So let's just sit for a moment. Thank you for your beautiful questions.
5: Just taking a moment to touch in to the momentary experience of being in this mind body process. And just dedicating all of the benefit and merit that we've received here tonight for the benefit of all beings everywhere without exception. May all beings be happy, healthy, and free from suffering.
0: Just take a moment and think of anyone specifically that you would like to send this wish to, people who may be in distress, ill, of different kinds of distress. grief and particularly the people all around the world who have been forced from their homes and all the people in the world who are without food tonight or hungry some gratitude for the amazing comfort that we live in sending our benefit out to them.